So this evening, uh, I would actually like to continue uh, where Stephen left off, or possibly talk about the same thing, but with a different angle. So I also want to talk about emptiness, Kong in uh, Korean, and Anata, not self. So we kind of decided on the same subject. And so what, because this is something that, in a way, has intrigued me for some time. Is anatta the same as what is called emptiness in a Korean song? And generally, both sides think not, because generally they think that they've got it, and it's better than the other. And I had that experience with, uh, I have a, a friend, uh, my best friend, is a Korean monk. We used to call him the farmer monk, because he used to work in the farm a lot. But at the same time, he's somebody who's uh, done a lot of practice. And at the same time, he's uh, studied the text, and especially the text on emptiness, which is one of the main texts is a heart sutra, which is relatively known in certain circles for the phrase, form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. That's where it comes from. And so, some years ago, I went back to Korea, and I was visiting my friend, and I was trying to talk to him about mindfulness practice, about... Uh, you know, being aware of this and that. Then he looked at me with kind of a slight indulgent look, you know, like, yeah, poor thing, it's okay. And so saying to me, to be polite, yeah, yeah, it's all right, but it is not experiencing the emptiness of it. So in a way, to me, when I look at these two aspects, the emptiness or anatta, the not-self, in a way, the mindfulness, what I find interesting is that actually, personally, the way I would look at it, I would look at it at skillful means, as in a way, a way to actually trying to make us not grasp so much. But they use two very di different stratagem, techniques, strategy, to go about it. So, in a way, the vipassana angle, the mindfulness angle, is actually by looking directly at things, being more mindful of things. So, in a way, it's kind of a little more analytical, it's a little more specific. It's saying, look, your thought, it's not you. It's not yourself. Look, that feeling, it's not yourself. Look, that feeling, it's gone. It's truly not yourself, if it's gone. So in a way there, you have this kind of, you know, really pointing out specifically at something. And in a way, through the not-self, saying, look, it is not as you think it is. So it's really working on misperception, kind of changing the misperception. But in a way, the Korean song, you, you could say is more like jumping off a cliff. And if you jump off a cliff, I mean, you're going to experience space. <laughs> but, but you emptiness for sure. <laughs> and so in a way what they want, like that's why I brought with me, uh, it's two quote but it's the same translation. Uh, so it's just because t the two translation give the kind of the good angle on what the quote means and it's from the letter of Master Tawi and he's using the quote from Lehman Pang with a great layperson from China and great respected uh, practitioner. 
So this is what Lemon Peng said, that's how he said, if you understand this, then you sort it in terms of the practice. So here is a, the quote in just two translations. You may hope to eliminate all existing thing, but never make an existing thing out of any non-existing thing. Other translation. Dust resolve to regard as empty all that exists and do not take as real all that does not exist. So basically here, what they're trying to say is that the practice of son is to experience. Because you see, to me, the difference here, the, the, the kind of one of the difference here, and why at one level vipassana might be easier than then. And that's why at the moment in Korea, more people want to do mindfulness because it's obvious and they can get it fast. When with the sun tradition, actually they need to have a certain type of experience. And so in a way, in the Korean sun tradition, they want you to have the experience, what they call a breakthrough, of actually experiencing, you could say, things as not things. So then that's kind of where it gets a little tricky. What does it mean to experience things as not things? So let me give you an example, and I really, I want to point out, like, of course, here they express it. They try to explain it, and you think, you know, what are they doing? They tang themselves as nuts. Because actually, they're not into analysis. They actually want you to have an experience, and again and again, they try to describe that experience. And often when you look at what they describe, you think, hmm? you know, what are they really saying here? So just let me explain what I think they mean and what kind of experience they want you to have. Is, uh, in Korea, I used to have this three-month retreat where you sit 10 hours a day. And I am not the greatest sitter in the universe, so after, you know, 10 time, sitting 50 minutes and walking 10 minutes, then I would be in, one could say, relative agony. <laughs> so, you know, I would have pain in the knees, pain in the legs. And so sometime, I could have enough anchoring and enough questioning that then I would really go inside the pain, and actually the pain would disappear. And actually the pain would turn into emptiness, because that's in those days, that's the way I would look at it. That in a way you kind of experience the emptiness of the sensation. So you had the experience of, ooh, I am the same body and everything, but I am experiencing this extremely differently. And so in a way, I think what they're trying to do is not make us make things into things. So that then it's much more easy to become my thing. So that it becomes more fixed and it becomes more my. And so I think that's what they're trying to do. But you could say that in either side, that you go into the mindfulness analysis and you see, this is not myself. You can actually have the difficulty with, if you go all the way with that, is that actually thing exists, a separate entity, and you have some theory like that. The same can happen with the, this emptiness track that instead of thinking of it as a strategy, so that we don't kind of fix things and make them mine, then you 
suddenly make it, I'm going to use a Stephen word, an ontology, which means that actually you think that this describes reality, which means that then emptiness becomes a thing. And that's why here he says, mm -mm, don't do that. So we hear what they're saying here. Don't make, don't make things into things, but also don't make not things into something either. So basically, like uh, Stephen was speaking about Nagarjuna yesterday, don't make emptiness into a thing. Because in a way, I think these are strategy, but then you can use them nearly as a kind of a description of reality. And then you have all kind of theory about it. And recently I had um, an experience like that. Uh, last year when I did the retreat with this master, we were just, you know, just a wadu, just a wadu. And yeah, kind of a little really weird wadu, but we won't go into that. And so, you know, you just a wadu, just a wadu. And why he did this and nothing else. And you know, you had to do this, you know, all the time. Just what do, just what do. Because he wanted you to have an experience. And so we were about 30 people and about five got the experience. Because it was a bit short. Seemingly you get more taker when it's kind of a little longer. <laughs> so, and then you had the testimony of the experience. And so then they were telling us, you know, that basically the experience was that you felt this incredibly exhilarating feeling of kind of joy, excitement, <gasps> and at the same time, this incredible love for everybody. But what was interesting was that for him to have that experience then become a description of a reality, so kind of become an ontology. And then, because I was sitting there thinking, oh God, that's, what does he want them to have? What he want? And then finally, when they all described what they were experiencing, I was sitting there, I thought, ah, I experienced it too. I mean, I have experienced this. But what was interesting is that I had a very different take on having that experience. One day I was teaching in Bristol and in the middle of it, of sitting with everybody, suddenly I had that experience of feeling really amazing. It was like, wow. And then feeling this amazing love. Like everybody was lovable. Everybody had the Buddha nature. It was wow. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, interesting. I mean, not very practical <laughs> in this moment in time. And so I left it. And I did not deduce anything about reality or anything like that. I just thought, oh, this is just what personally I would call a de-grasping experience. So in a way, I think when we look at emptiness or when we look at not self, in a way, we have to be careful. Are we making them into things? That I must experience this emptiness, this special emptiness, or I must experience this not-self. And generally, I have, when I think of that, either one, I think, you know, that at the end of the retreat, then there is just a little puff of smoke on the cushion, you know? <laughs> Everybody disappear in a puff of smoke. But this is, I don't think that's what it is about. I think it's really a strategy, and you can have different strategy, to actually help us not make things into things and not make them mine. But that doesn't mean they do not exist. Because that's, the, the, that's in a way often the leap that happens. 
that from this not being a thing and not mine, it means, and this is where one has to be very careful, it's an illusion. So everything is an illusion. And that I think is very dangerous way to look at things. Because generally if everything is an illusion, the first thing that goes is ethics for whatever reason. So in a way what I think is what we're trying to do uh, when we look at this emptiness or when we look at this not self. Well in terms of the emptiness, it can be an interesting practice to kind of this is not a thing. How can I not make this a thing? So when I say the word, it seems like an intellectual exercise. But when we do it, when kind of we have that experience, that is interesting. When we kind of actually have that degrasping experience. So let me give you an example, which happened to me. Uh, recently, last, I think last year or the year before. So because of this, back to this research in France, in Normandy, in Caen, uh, they're doing also a kind of a sideline. So they want to check with seniors who have not done anything, but they also want to check with people who have done the famous 10,000 hours of sitting meditation. So since seemingly I have done my 10,000 hours, I kind of, so yeah, I should have uh, 10 years in Korea, three months, 10 hours a day. I thought, yeah, possibly I have them. So they wanted me, you know, to do all the same thing as everybody will do, the fMRI, the PET scan. And I never done an fMRI or PET scan, but I thought, you know, what's difficult about that? You know, let's do it. So I went there, I did the questionnaire and thing of that nature. And then I had to go and do the fMRI. And we all thought it would be totally fine. You know, I arrived and then they put this foam thing around my head before they even put the, f the thing to hold my head on the bench. And immediately my body goes, uh-uh, no way. I am not doing this. So heart palpitation. <gasps> I had never had that before. And so they kind of, you know, putting me on the thing. And I said, I don't think I can do this. So we stop, I got out and we look at each other. I think, you know, she's supposed to be able to do this, you know. <laughs> this is very expensive exercise, you know. And I think, you know, I should be able to do this. But my body is saying, no way, you know. So then I we kind of come a little, 10 minutes. We say, okay, let's go, let's go, let's do it, let's do it. So back to the thing. And immediately, as soon as they put their foam thing, my, my lungs go, I don't like this. So I said, okay, it's okay. So they put the other thing, they put me in the machine. And my whole body is saying, no way. And what is very interesting is that as I lie there and there is a sound and everything, I can feel that I could make it into a thing. Because I can feel that inchoate feeling of, I cannot stand this. I can really feel the whole body saying, let's get out. Like we're very close. I can see it's very close between I can be here and to let's get out. That kind of the let's get out, I'm dying is kind of very close, very close. <laughs> so I am there and I decide, you know, I can feel, I can feel. I could make it into a thing, I could make it my thing, and then I really could not be in the machine. And so then I throw everything. Ten minutes. I was doing mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of the sound, asking the question and telling myself, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this, you can do this. 10 minutes. 
I did this. And after 10 minutes, suddenly it was like Nirvana. <laughs> I was like in space. You know, I felt like in this science fiction movie. I was just in space. And for the rest of the time, I was just in this nirvanic space. But to me, what was interesting here was that moment I could have made it into nothing and my thing, and then forget it. But that it did not, it, because it was physiological, it did not go in one second. But that actually by doing the practice, it managed to in a way lower down enough the system that then there could be this change. And so to me what I think the emptiness idea and this quote could help us is a little bit kind of like as a little play, you know? You suddenly feel you're kind of sticking to something. And then to realize, hey, I'm making this into a thing, like a real, real thing. And it is my thing. And to see that as soon as you make it into a thing, it kind of becomes more intense. And as soon as you make it into my thing, then it's even more amplified. And so to me, the strategy, basically the strategy of emptiness, is basically a strategy of not intensifying, of not amplifying, but by in a way working very hard on anchoring and questioning. So it's kind of like you really jump off the cliff without the parachute and not hope for the best, but work very hard. You pedal very hard until then, suddenly it becomes like wings. I mean, that's in a way what one is asked to do with this emptiness idea. You know, you and then suddenly you have that transformation. You have that non-grasping things. So it can be a little kind of like direct. And that's why I think, in a way, often there is this idea that the Son tradition, the Zen tradition, the Chan tradition is more like a shortcut. Like it's, but it's a shortcut in terms that it's direct. But I don't know if you have any experience with shortcut. I mean, generally, they're not easy. Kind of often you have the bramble, you say, oh, this looks like a shortcut, and then you kind of, you know, bramble and whatnot, whatnot. So you might get there, it's a shortcut, but it might not mean it's easier. And I think that's why in the story, what is very interesting is that in the story again and again, generally they practice for seven years or 10 years, and then they have the moment. And so in a way, they have the, what is interesting in those moments, and one of the famous ones is the one where the guy, the monk, practice 10 years and nothing happens, you know, and he's kind of doing this, and, the, the wings are really not appearing, you know, and so he gets a little flat, fed up with just kind of shh. And so finally he give up, and so he decides to go to hermitage and just, you know, take it easy a little bit. And then one day he's kind of uh, working in the field, and he hits a pebble, which hit a bamboo and goes ping. <laughs> and in that moment he has his breakthrough. But then what he says is, oh, it was there all along. So what he is meaning is that there is not this kind of fabulous, mystical emptiness at the end of the rainbow. You're not flying off to kind of, in a way, nirvana land. But that it helps you, the breakthrough, to see, oh yeah, I can be in this experience in a non-grasping way, in a non-amplifying way, and I would say even more in a non-self-centered way. Because I think in a way what this is working on is a thing that generally we, are, we feel we are the center of the universe. 
instead of realizing we are the center of my universe up to a point. So generally everything converges to me. And I think in that experience it goes differently. I converge the other way. That suddenly you open to the whole world, even instead of having the whole world in a way kind of being a reference for you, instead of really opening to the whole thing. And then, so in a way, what can, and in that book of Tower, what is very beautiful is that, um, I mean, the Taoist letter, uh, the only way you can get it, and the translation is so-so, but what can one do, is um, through the one book which is called Swamp Land Flowers. And so it's all about you know emptiness, and this is the best way, and whatever, all this kind of thing. But he has one letter which is very beautiful because it's a letter about a, a lemon who writes him a letter saying he's trying to practice hard, but actually, you know, trying to see the emptiness and try to experience it. And at the same time, his son is very ill and he's very sad and he's crying. And what is interesting in the letter, in the reply to Master Tawi, is that he starts with, yes, you know, everything is empty and the illness of the son is empty and you're empty and he's empty, but still, he's your son, so it's going to make you cry, and that's fine. The fact that things are empty doesn't mean you are not a human person. Having a human experience, having human emotion in situation. And I found that very interesting to have these two aspects, which is what the quote is about. Don't make a not thing into a thing. So to kind of say everything is empty, which then would mean, well, if everything is empty, my son is empty, the illness is empty, then pff, who cares? And he said not. The difference here is actually you cry, you're sad, you're concerned, but you don't make it into a thing. You don't make it into my thing, which again amplifies it. And I think it is a, so that's I would say the angle on that one. And then you have the anatta. To me what is really interesting in the anatta is actually what is it trying to say? To me, it's not, I don't find it so interesting that there is not a self as we think there is a self. I mean, you know, as an analysis, yeah, you know, you can say, you know, because I cannot move my stomach, my stomach is not myself. I mean, you have lots of text with this kind of thing. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm not totally, I mean, you can think that, but is it going to change the way you feel about yourself? And what is interesting here is actually, how do I feel that self? I mean, generally, I am this organism doing things, and most of the time, I don't have this strong feeling, I am a self in the world, you know? I mean, we feel it generally when we're embarrassed. Or we feel it when we're self-conscious. And it's kind of funny. You have this funny feeling of this thing, which appears as this kind of really a bit weird, weighty kind of, you know? So that, I think, is kind of like we can see it more in this kind of uh, event. And then it's interesting to look. How does it feel to feel self-conscious? How does it feel to have this, hmm, they're saying this about me, hmm. or they're looking at me, hmm. So it's kind of interesting, that kind of when it kind of coagulate in some way. And generally there is a slight unpleasant feeling tone associated with it. 
But what I would find, I would nearly say more interesting in terms of the not-self is actually to look that basically the not-self is about conditionality. So it's about basically looking at ourselves as a flow of condition, a flow of inner conditions meeting outer conditions. And then what happens here is often the problem is not the self. The problem is that actually we reduce the self to just one of the condition that forms it. So as a kind of a self, which I would say as a flow of condition, as an organism, this self, organic thing, is composed of many things. Thought, feeling, sensation, functioning, capacity, what I learn, things from the society, genes, body, etc., etc. So anyway, this organism is made up of all these things encountering also the outer conditions. So it's made up of many conditions. That's in a way the characteristic of a self, of a not-self. It's made up of lots of things. But often what happens is that we grasp and we identify with just one of the conditions that forms us. And that, what happens when we do this? Like we have this multi-perspectival organism in action, alive. And then suddenly all this becomes one thought or it becomes one sensation, or it becomes one emotion, or it becomes one difficulty, or it becomes just a problem at work. I'm not saying the thought, the problem, the emotion are not valid. They're valid, they are your experience. But if all your sense of self becomes reduced into that one thing, then actually, ooh, it's extremely tight. I mean, you are reducing everything, functioning, potential, ability, everything to one thing. And then, if you do that, then it's genuinely painful because it's really reductive. But then, because we do this, we magnify what we reduce ourselves to. And so we just have the thought, or we just have the sensation, or the feeling. That's what happened to me recently. Uh, I mean, now I'm quite, kind of quite well, finally, I'm kind of quite fine. But uh, over the beginning of the year, I was not very well, especially in January. And so I had some nights really very painful, and really out of it. And, and at one level, it was okay. And at another level, when you're in pain at night and not sleeping, you lots of unpleasant feeling told which then it's very interesting to see where does it go, this making a thing into a thing, this. And so the, one of the main things that it went into for me was Stephen is not here. I am alone. I am in pain. <laughs> and then proliferation went on, unpleasant proliferation, which led to unpleasant feeling tone. You know, next night the same. Oh, I'm in pain. Stephen is not here. And, and by the third night, I thought, come on. You know, you're a meditation teacher, you have done meditation, possibly you could apply this to that. So then I applied myself, and then I had a very different experience. And it's the same. Do I, in a way, reduce myself to a sensation? 
do I reduce myself to a thought which said, you're going to have an amazing proliferation. And that's why we have an, ama- I mean, we have an amazing imagination. You know, when we grasp and we self, it goes in all kinds of places. And what I would say wonderful about the practice is that you practice and whoop, it's like it goes, the amplification goes. It's not mine in that way anymore. It's not a thing in that way anymore. And so, in a way, personally, I think what is interesting, because I think it is not easy to, practice, to do this in terms of the practice, to kind of experience the emptiness or look at the not-self. But one way we can do it is to notice. And I think that's where the vipassana, the mindfulness, can really come in. I think the emptiness, the questioning, can come in in terms of the directness, the giving, the energy. That, I think, can be helpful. But in terms of the mindfulness, the vipassana, I think it can be interesting to see, hey, what is going on right now? What am I doing here? And to see how, oh, I am just this thought now. Myself is actually just this thought. Or myself is just resumed to this feeling. Once I had a a friend many years ago uh, who came to me and said, you know, that uh, one of her problems was that she had a feeling of shame. She kind of felt this feeling of shame. And so she thought it was kind of, you know, part of herself. And so what I asked her to do was, can you be aware when you're not experiencing it? When you feel well, when you feel fine, can you be as aware of that as when you feel this funny, heavy, unpleasant, shame feeling? So she did this for a bit, and she said, yeah, I don't feel this all the time. But when I feel it, it's so unpleasant that it invades everything. And then I said, can you notice what are the conditions that give rise to the feeling, specifically, before it seems to invade everything? And then she went and do that, did that, and actually she realized that she, only one person made her feel ashamed. And so after that, she looked at it in a very different way. Because instead of thinking, identifying, I am a a shame person, I have this shameful feeling, I must be a terrible person, she realized, oh, there is condition, there is a trigger. When I meet this person, it triggers a very unpleasant, shameful feeling tone. It's there. I identify. This is a thing, this is my thing, and then it goes everywhere. And through that mindfulness, through that inquiry, that analysis, she had a different relationship with it. And in a way, personally nowadays, when I look at the idea of emptiness, or the idea of not-self, the term I prefer to use actually is the opposite. That actually what we are doing in practice is allowing us to move from grasping, from selfing, and instead having creative engagement. So I think because in a way, the impression of those words not self, emptiness, seems to mean that in a way we must find nothing. So that is kind of like an absence of something. But personally, the way I would look at it is that actually it dissolves the stickiness. It dissolves this self-centered, this selfing thing. 
And instead, you get a creative potential of possibility. So it's not just a not something. It's actually so that we can, in that, we could say, removal of the stickiness, then finally our creative functioning, being able to engage with the condition, with what goes on. And so that's why I think it's kind of be interesting to look at when is it I grasp, and then there is that making a thing, my thing, this kind of tightening selfing, and when does it open up? And then I can a creative response, creative engagement. And so that's why personally I feel when we practice the anchoring and the questioning, the looking deeply, actually what we develop is what I would call a creative awareness, which is characterized by wisdom and compassion. Because I would say, from the emptiness, from the not-selfing, again, that's where the compassion, that's where the loving kindness is going to come. Because if we are not the center of the universe, but just one part of the universe, then we can see other as important as us. Because this is in a way the problem with the self-centeredness, is that by being too focused on ourselves, then we cannot be so focused on others. So then it becomes more an equilibrium that actually, yes, I exist. Emptiness, not self, doesn't mean I don't exist. I exist in the world. And in that world, there is other people, other things, the environment. And then the question is, how do I creatively engage with myself and with the world around us? With that quality, to me, that's what is important, with that quality of wisdom, that quality of compassion. So that's what I wanted to say. And then I wanted to read two poems. And so the poems are from, from my favorite nun, who was my great heroine when I was in Korea. And uh, ours is a great love story because uh, I really loved her, and she was uh, wonderful. And so she, she was extremely humble. I mean, the book is actually her life and I, my life, so I kind of did a little biography of her, and then I also got some poem from her. And so I wanted to, trans to kind of read two of her poems. Empty is the original mind of sentient creature. Unsubstantial is their being. Where could a Buddha be born? Following the way they rise to Buddhahood, committing a crime, they fall into hell. What futile information. And then another one, a little long, but I think it also says something about this subject. Morning meditation, and I leave the hall to greet the singing birds, the luxurious shades of mountain trees, a thousand perfumed flowers, a hundred sparkling grasses, all the Buddha of Vairochana, original source of the Buddha, so vivid and clear. If all this arises through one body, why then birth and death, confusion and enlightenment? As the original source, birth, death, nirvana, all dreams, ordinary and sacred, both dreams, samsara and liberation, only dreams. 
And then there was actually, I had two questions I thought maybe I could answer now. So one was about uh, the current popular mindfulness uh, and, it's, and what's the general picture of that and because it's in a lot of schools now. So this is actually an interesting question because I uh, become interested in Buddhism when I was 20. Then I was a nun for 10 years and I have been around. Now I am, uh, I think, 63 plus possibly. And what is interesting in these 40 years is that 40 years ago, we would never, never have imagined that MPs in the parliament would be doing meditation classes. That we never imagined that. So each of us was doing our little thing. People in the Tibetan tradition were doing their Tibetan things and the Zen people were doing their Zen thing and the Vipassana, their Vipassana thing and everybody was doing their thing and generally thought my thing is better than theirs. That's natural. Because if you do it and it's good for you, it's good for everybody. And so everybody should do like you. It's a little kind of tendency we have. So in those days, a few people, a few traditions, not to mention names, looked down upon mindfulness, as you know, low rank. A bit like my Hmong friend, poof, it's not emptiness. And then, thanks to John Kabat-Zinn, mindfulness became a big thing and extremely popular because it works. So now, everybody is trying to do catch-up. <laughs> and so now everybody does mindfulness. And I think, why not? A bit of mindfulness is always good for somebody, you know? I think it's not bad for some people to do mindfulness <laughs> or for Tibetan Buddhists to do mindfulness. Why not? I'm sure, you know, as they teach others, they might have to do it themselves too and benefit from it. So why not? So that would be my take on it. That's that question. And then there was a question about something I said the other day. And this was about forgiveness. And so the question is, how do you work if you need forgiveness from someone who is dead? And so here, I think in a way, this is really about acceptance. I think forgiveness for me is about acceptance, is about recognition. So it's not so much about somebody forgiving me. I mean, it's always nice. But I think it's, can I forgive myself? If I make a mistake, if I hurt somebody, the difficulty is that you cannot undo it. We've made the mistake, we hurt somebody, and in a way, there is nothing we can do about that. We cannot undo it at a distance. And so in a way, to me, there the forgiveness is to accept, to have the humility, oh yeah, 
I did that. I mean, nowadays, generally people think I am a, you know, quite a nice person. Friendly, generally, compassionate, generally. But I'm sure if you met somebody who was with me in Korea in the first year, Gudula, I'm sure she would say, Marty? Ooh. I mean, she's a nice person. That's not the way she was with me. I mean, we change. Because in those days, I was a little tough. So, and, I, and she did not experience me as a friendly person. And it took me some time to understand what she, what she meant. And so for me, the, you know, it was very good, the practice, to really become a true compassionate person and not an imaginary, in my imagination, compassionate person. Because that was my problem in those days. I thought I was really, you know, I was going to save the world. But not in a friendly manner, it seems. <laughs> so anyway, whenever I think of good life, I think, oh. And at the same time, that's where I was then. And then I can endeavor not to be like that anymore. So in a way, I think to me, the, the ritual of forgiveness in Korea is really about accepting, yes, this is what I've done. It's harmful, it's inappropriate. How can I learn not to do it again? And so I think I would say in the forgiveness, the acceptance of the error, the humility of that being that we are fragile, limited human being. And so in a way, with this kind of case, I would say to forgive ourselves by accepting and also maybe seeing that I am not like that anymore. I don't do this anymore. So is there anything else? If not, yeah? What I was reading, the book here? So this book is uh, Women in Korean Zen. So it's a book I did, and uh, it's because when I was in Korea, I met this nun, and she was like, you know, she's a great nun, she had great experiences, but she was extremely humble. So I practiced with her, and then I really kind of, uh, we became great friends. And then one day she told me her whole life, which I uh, taped. And then when I came back here, I translated it. And then it was not long enough, so I did also my life as a Korean nun. And then I wrote the manuscript, which was rejected. And then somebody heard of it. And then the Syracuse University Press published it. So that's what the book is about. It's like I am I'm a little fondness for it. So we'll stop here and then uh, do the walking meditation. <laughs>